0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 19 through 22 as we continue in our sermon series on worship this month. And today we're dealing with the question, Why do we have music and singing in our worship service? Why is that something we invest a lot of time in every week, doing five or six songs a week? Why do we have music and singing in our worship service? And we're going to walk through the scripture together to get the answer to that question. But I want to give you the, the short answer up front. Here's the reason why we have music and singing in our worship. It's because music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people. Music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people. We first see this connection between worship on the one hand and music and singing on the other in the book of Exodus. As you will recall, in Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And do you remember why God was telling Moses to tell Pharaoh that? He said, you're supposed to tell him, let my people go so that they may worship me, Exodus 4 tells us. And then God does, of course, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He doesn't let them go. God works through many mighty acts and and does redeem his people from their slavery. And they do indeed worship him in the wilderness. And when you get to Exodus 15, the people of God are gathered. And the question is, what does their worship look like? Right? God has freed them, he's redeemed them so that they may worship him. What did that worship look like? And you can read in Exodus 15 that the people of God celebrated their redemption with singing and dancing and playing instruments. That example in Exodus teaches us a few things. It teaches us about God, that he desires worship, Right, that he redeems people so that they would worship him. And it shows us that music and singing in worship, um, are that those things are acceptable to God because God's Word shows us that that is acceptable worship to God. It tells you a little bit about us, right? That people who are redeemed by God worship God. And that music and singing are a way that we do that. I want to keep walking through the Scripture with you this morning. That's Exodus. I ask you to turn to Deuteronomy 31. And this is such a fascinating passage of Scripture. Before I read beginning in verse 19, let me give you the context. Um, if you'll recall, God has redeemed his people from Egypt. He's brought them out the desert. We saw last week in Psalm 95 that they hardened their heart. They did not follow God in his ways. They didn't do what he had asked them to do. And so God said, look, this generation that came out of Egypt is not going to go into the promised land. And he has them wait until they die out. Well, here in Deuteronomy, the next generation... Uh, those folks, not the ones that came out of Egypt, but the next generation is about to go in and take the land under Joshua's leadership. This is one of the last things God has Moses do. Moses is about to die. God's told him that he's going to die, not into the promised land, earlier in this in this chapter. And I want you to look and see in Deuteronomy 31. Look what God says here as the people are about to enter the promised land. Hear now God's word, Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning verse 19. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them, God says. Verse 20, when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant." And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do. Even before I bring them into the land, I promise them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. And you can read that song, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, the next chapter. But man, what a fascinating passage of Scripture. Think about what God is saying here. Think about the implications of this. First, what does it teach us about God? Well, first of all, it shows us that God himself is a composer. God writes songs. God writes lyrics. God writes music. God himself is a composer. So when we write songs, when we are creative in this way, it is a way that we image God and show what he is like in our creativity. We don't think about God as a songwriter, but God is a composer. Secondly, think about what this tells us about us, about our own hearts. God is very clear. We are prone to wander, right? He says, look, I know what's going to happen when this group gets into the promised land, And they are blessed by me, he says in verse 21, you see it there. I know what they are disposed to do. Our disposition is to wander from God. And notice that he's not surprised by that. We're surprised by that. God's not surprised by our tendency to wander. We need to know that about ourselves and accept that about ourselves. But also notice what this says about music. It says music is powerful. Think about that. Think about what God is saying about music. God is saying that these people are going to be blessed, that these people are are going to be in the promised land, and that they're going to forget the mighty acts that God did to get them there, that they're going to forget God's covenant. God says they're even going to forget me. But if you'll teach them this song, even their descendants won't forget this song. Music is powerful. You heard Will talk about the music turning him and turning his direction and turning his thinking before he prayed this morning. Music is powerful and God shows us that here in his word. You know, it's so funny. We forget so many things. I mean, I forget where I put my keys down. We spend a lot of times in our house with people saying, where is my phone? I can't remember where I put my phone. We forget people's names. But interestingly, if I started playing a song right now that you hadn't heard in decades, you'd be able to recall lyrics. You'd be able to recall experiences you had while that song was playing. Sight, smells will come back to you. Music is powerful. Now, take those things together. If all those things are true, if God gives us songs to help us remember, if God gives us songs as a warning against unfaithfulness, if we're prone to wander and God has given us this powerful thing in music, then the question is, do you acknowledge you're prone to wander? And do you have a song that turns you back to the right place? Do you have a song that helps you to remember? Have you filled your mind with songs that turn your attention back to where, or are the songs that you sing help you turn away from God? It's important to have a place to go. We sang some this morning, Come Ye Sinners is certainly a reminder of our state. I think of come thou found of every blessing where the chorus says we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We need to have songs that turn us back to God, that help us to remember him. Because God gives us songs to remember and as a warning against unfaithfulness. Well, these folks enter the promised land and sure enough, God is right. Uh, they thrive and are blessed, and they turn to other gods. And it's interesting, they turn to this god called Baal. It's a Canaanite god of fertility who promises them children that they'll be fertile physically. He promises them crops that they'll have harvest, which is really important in an agrarian society. And so there are these tangible things promised by these tangible gods. You can actually look and see uh, this God Baal, right, that people have built these idols. But God, remember the Ten Commandments we saw last week, Israel's God was an invisible God. God had said, don't make images of me in the second commandment. And so the people's hearts turned from this invisible God that they had to this visible God that they had created of their own. And so what does God do in that situation? It is interesting, just like he did in Deuteronomy 31, God again gives them a song to remember him, to remind them of what is true. But this time, God doesn't just give his people one song, like that song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He gives them a whole book of songs, 150 songs, the entire book of Psalms God gives to his people to remind them what is true. Now, think about that with me, the implications of that. It teaches us, first, that that God pursues us in many ways, right? That God doesn't give up on his people who are prone to wander. And think about how God pursues us. God's people had the Pentateuch. They had those five books of the Bible written down. They had God's word, To engage their minds. But then God put his word to music. To make his word a delight to us. To help us remember so that we would not forget. The implications for us are important. It means that yes, we should fill our minds with God's word. That is something that we should do. So that the Holy Spirit can bring those words back to our mind when we need them. But it also means... That the affection of our hearts are stirred by songs. And that God gives us songs to keep us close to him. So let me ask you, do you have a place that you go? Do you have songs that you can go to that stir your heart for him? Uh, Oftentimes, just from my own experience, maybe you, I, I, I suspect I'm not the only one. Sometimes you're just in a place that you can't pray. You just don't have words. You don't know what to say. And sometimes you're in a dry place, you're looking at God's word, and it's just words on a page. It's not really penetrating your heart. And a lot of times in that situation, I will then listen to sermons because I can be a lot more passive, and it's just working in my heart, and I'm, I'm hoping that my, my heart gets going. And sometimes that does a trick, sometimes it doesn't. And for me, it's often songs about God, about what is true about his word that draw him back to me. Lee laughs at me about this. I'll tell you what mine is, right? I love that Michael W. Smith worship album. I know it's like 80s and 90s music recorded in the 90s or early 2000s, but I love to go back there and listen to that. And there's something about that that moves my heart and stirs me and brings me back to God. Even when these other means of grace don't seem to be penetrating my heart. Do you have a place to go? Do you have songs that connect you to God? It's important that you do because music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people. Well, if you keep marching through the Bible, you see this continues to be the case. In First Chronicles 25, David appointed musicians and singers to work in the temple. So as a part of the worship of God from ages past, we've had people who were skillful and trained to play musical instruments and to sing. Think about that. They were skillful. They had natural gifts that had been given them by God. The scripture says they were skillful and they were trained that the people of God thought it was important to invest in training people to play instruments and to sing because it was such a valuable part. We had a worship workshop here that we had planned that's been postponed, and, and we'll have to get that going back again, but we do that because of the example that we see in the Scripture. If you keep going, Second Chronicles chapter 7, singers and musicians performed at the dedication of the temple when God's glory came and filled the temple in response to the music and singing as God literally inhabited the praises of his people, as the Psalms tell us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, singers and musicians are a part of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple. Throughout the Old Testament, music and singing were a part of the coronation of kings, and all this is going on because music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people. And as they continued to live in the land, the prophets begin to tell of a day when God would redeem his people once and for all time, that it wouldn't be like the redemption that they got from Exodus that didn't wasn't lasting. It was to say he's going to redeem them once and for all time. And we're told by the prophets that at that time, God's people would celebrate that redemption by singing a new song. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah chapter 43, where he explicitly says that we'll sing a new song in response to that redemption. We'll come back to that new song language later. And by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Zephaniah says that not only will God's people sing at his once and for all time redemption, but that God himself will sing. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Zephaniah chapter 3. I know it's hard to find sometimes. Um, it is after Habakkuk, then Zephaniah, hey guy, you've gone too far. Zechariah is too far. Zephaniah chapter 3, we have it here on the screen if you have trouble finding it. I'm going to read three verses from Zephaniah 3. And I want you to listen to what it says. Listen specifically for, this, listen for who sings first. Listen for why do they sing, and then listen for who joins the singing, all right? Who sings first? Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So who's singing? The daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, the people of God are being commanded to sing here, right? Why are they singing? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God is with you. He is mighty to save. So why do they sing? Because the Lord's taken away their punishment because he's with them, because he's defeated their enemies, because he is delighting over them. Now watch who joins the singing verse 17. The Lord, your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Who is he? The Lord your God, right? He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. God not only composes music, but God himself sings. And he promises when that once and for all redemption comes, That not only will God's people sing that our punishment has been taken away, but that God himself will join our singing. Will other prophets in the Old Testament warn God's people to walk in his ways, but they disobey God and ended up going into exile and the singing of God's people actually stops. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 137. This is such an interesting psalm. Lee, you talked about how ironic it was that we're focused on music and singing, but we gave the band the week off because we didn't want to force them to be here under the current conditions. This song is kind of ironic because Psalm 137 is a song about not singing. It's a song about not singing. Look at Psalm 137, verse 1. They say, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. You see, God's people have been disobedient even after Zephaniah's promise. God's promise through Zephaniah. And they've been carried off to exile in Babylon. Daniel, remember the prophet who is in Babylon? He writes after Zephaniah. So God has promised this one time and for all redemption. And it hasn't come yet. In fact, the people have been more disobedient, and they're even more under bondage now as they're enslaved in Babylon. And the singing of God's people stops. Not only do God's people, are not, they're not singing, God is not singing, right? Look at the rest of Psalm 137. He says, there on the poplars, you're trying to say willows, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? God's people sing. Do you hear what's going on there? God's people are being carried off into exile, and the singing is stopping, and they're saying, we refuse to sing, we're just hanging up our instruments. But notice what this is saying about the people of God. That their enemies recognize, hey, this group of people is a singing and, and, and a musician kind of a people. They have songs. They have instruments. And yeah, they're taunting them and saying, play us one of the songs of Zion. But God's people are known as a people who sing and as a people who play instruments. And that's why they just hang up their instruments on the trees and say, no, we refuse to do it. But God's people are known as a singing People who play. Are we known that way in our culture? Where God's people go into exile and the singing stops. God's not singing. The people are not singing. God had promised this once and for all redemption and that he would sing. The people would sing. But now there's no singing at all. There are a few more prophets. But even after Malachi, the word of the Lord stops flowing through the prophets. There are no songs. There are no words for the Lord for four Hundred years, silence from God, no singing amongst his people. And then one day, an angel appears to a young Jewish girl in Nazareth of Galilee. And Gabriel says to Mary, look, the child you carry in your womb, is the one that's gonna bring that once and for all time redemption that God promised through the prophet Zephaniah. And what is Mary's response? She begins to sing. The song of Mary. You can read it there in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. Mary's song, where she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and the singing of God's people begins. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He came about in telling about the rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and about a father who loves his wayward children so much that when they come back to him, when they come to their senses and they return to him, that the father throws a huge feast complete with what? Music and dancing. You can read about in Luke chapter 15. And on his way to accomplish a salvation for God's wayward children, Jesus had a meal with his disciples, a meal we call the Last Supper. And what's the last thing that Jesus did at the Last Supper before he went out to accomplish a salvation for his people? You know if you've ever taken communion with us here. Because we all say before they left, they sang a hymn together. And then we do the same thing as we continue that supper. You can read about it in Matthew 26 and verse 30. But watch this. The singing's not over. On the cross, Jesus is pierced. He's mocked. He's thirsty. They cast lots for his clothing. You know what the last thing he does before dying to pay the price of our sin? You know what the last thing he does? On the cross, dying. Jesus quotes the lyric to a song. Psalm 22. It's fascinating. It's a psalm that was written by David a thousand years before the crucifixion. If you want to turn there and look at it, it's an amazing psalm. The Lord must have given David insight because David never experienced anything like this. So God must have given him insight into what was going to happen. And Jesus said the first line of Psalm 22. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there are a lot of theological reasons why he said that. But he could have just said, God, we're separated. I have sin on me now. Why does he quote the first line of a song? Why would Jesus quote that to the people of God who have been singing that song for thousands of years? I'll tell you why. Because if I tell you the first line of a song you know, then you know where we're going. Right? Think about it. If I say to you, start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. Then you know I'm going where? New York, New York, right? If I tell you a story, if I say that there's a, just a small-town girl living in a lonely world, then you know she's taking the midnight train going where? Anywhere, right? If you know Journey and you know Don't Stop Believing, if you know the first line of the song, you know where this thing is going, Right? It's what Jesus is doing in Psalm 22. He quotes a song that all the people of God would know because he's telling where this thing is going. What does the song say? If you hear the first line of the song and you start thinking about what are the people there thinking, look what Psalm 22 says in verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what's going on. The people of God would recognize at the cross. People are mocking him, saying, if he's the Christ, why don't he save himself? If they know this song, they'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's what's happening here. Keep going. Look at verse 15. The psalm says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's a dried piece of pottery. And it says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus says from the cross, I'm thirsty, right? The psalm goes on. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Are you kidding me? David's rightness a thousand years before the Romans even come to power, before crucifixion has even been invented, As a method of execution, he's writing, they pierced my hands and my feet. And now I'm sitting here and Jesus is quoting this song. And if I know the song, I know that that's what it says. And here he is with his hands and his feet pierced. Jesus is telling the people of God where this thing is going by quoting the first line of this song. And look at where it goes. If you read beginning in verse 22 to the end then you will see that what happens is that God saves this one who's being persecuted. And this one who is saved praises God. And Jesus points to this song of lament that gives way to rejoicing, that comes with his resurrection and predicts that all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord because of what this one being persecuted has done. Jesus, by quoting Psalm 22 on the cross, is saying, hey, If you know the song, then you know where this thing is going. And then that's what happens. In the New Testament, if you keep going, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 to fill our time together with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to sing and to make music in our hearts to the Lord. And in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the Apostle John writes about our eternity in the presence of God. And in Revelation 5, he picks up that new song language. That language that the prophets of old had said, hey, when God takes away the punishment of his people, they're going to sing a new song. And then Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, we're told that the redeemed around the throne, guess what they sing? They sang a new song. Listen, Revelation 5, beginning in verse 11, the apostle John writes, then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, the living creatures, and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, yeah, I guess they did. What else would you do? But catch the drift of Revelation 5. All creation is singing the praises of God for all eternity. We will sing with all the redeemed for all eternity. And that means that music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people, and they will be forever. That's why we sing. That's why we have music in our worship services. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I thought the prophecy was the creator was going to sing with the creation. And I know you got Jesus quoting this song lyric on the cross, but he's not singing up there. What about the Creator singing with him? I thought that was the prophecy, not just that the redeemed would sing, but God would sing with his people. Well, if you're thinking that, whoa, you're sharp, that you were listening, I'm glad you're there. But I want you to know that that happens. Turn with me to Hebrews 2. This is the last passage we'll look at. We've looked at a lot of Scripture today. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. The writer to Hebrews writes, "...in bringing many sons to glory," which is what Jesus did, "...it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers." He says, verse 12, who says? Jesus says, the one who's not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, verse 12, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Do you hear what that's saying to us? At the present time, when this is written, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. But at the present time, Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us brothers... Jesus declares God's name to us by his spirit. And Jesus is here in the presence of the congregation singing the praises of God with us. Now, I don't fully understand how that works. But it's what the scripture says to me that Jesus declares to his brothers in the presence of the congregation that he will sing the praises of God. Watch this, this is crazy. You know what that song is he's singing right there in Hebrews 2? That one that says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You know what song he's singing? Psalm 22. (laughs) The one he started the first line of on the cross, and that he continues in our midst as he gathers with us by his spirit. And you know the end of the story because you know the song. The words of Zephaniah 3 have come to pass. We sing and rejoice because the Lord has taken away our punishment. And the Lord Jesus, as predicted in Psalm 22 and fulfilled in Hebrews 12, delights in us and sings with us. In the midst of our assembly, among the church gathered for worship, in the presence of the congregation, Jesus sings praises to the Father. That's why it's important for us to sing, so that we hear his voice in our midst as he sings in the presence of the congregation. Our singing Savior in our midst, taking our imperfect worship and making it perfect for the Father. Friends, I ask you, with our singing Savior singing with us, how can we keep from singing? When we're prone to wander and we're given songs by God to warn us of unfaithfulness, how can we keep from singing? When God gave us music and singing to stir our affections for him and to bring us closer to him, how can we keep from singing? And when music and singing are a significant part of the relationship between God and his people, how can we keep from singing? Let's pray and ask God to make us a singing people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great gift of music and song. Thank you that you know of its power and that you use it for good and for your purposes. I just pray this would not be an area that we're afraid of or that we flee from, but this would be an area that is redeemed for your glory. As the redeemed of God, write good music and image you in that way as we are a singing people who learn to play instruments for your glory and for the good of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.